Hello, and welcome to the Call Your Advocate podcast. I'm your host, Carolina Strain. I'm a child and youth advocate at the Avalon Center. And today's episode is titled, We Are Here For You. I'm going to have a special guest. She is an executive director at the Alternatives to Violence in Loveland, Colorado. Her name is Carrie Clark. I hope everyone enjoys today's podcast. Before I start, I just want to say that our podcast does talk a little bit about sensitive topics like domestic violence, sexual assault, trauma, and obviously the brutality of some of these behaviors. So I want to warn listeners that this might trigger you. I hope you still are able to stick along, but if not, we respect and we just wanted to put that out there. Also, with our podcast, we might be saying some stories about how people might be impacted, but due to confidentiality, there will be a change and alteration of names, gender, and certain describable information of these people so we can keep their privacy important. And before we start today, I want to say we have a special guest. Today, we are going to be talking about how advocates around this nation are helping victims. And our special guest is from Colorado. Her name is Carrie Clark. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Carolina. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. I mean... This is happening. It's the second episode, and now here we are collaborating from Tennessee to Colorado. Congratulations. It's amazing you're doing this. Get the word out there. Yeah. Um, Before we start today, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you do now, what you've done in your past? Tell them all these amazing facts about who you are. Absolutely. I don't know that they'll agree that they're amazing facts, but I'll try as best that I can. I'll argue Um, for you. (laughs) Thank you. I am the executive director of Alternatives to Violence in Loveland, Colorado. I have been working in domestic violence for about five years. Prior to that, I actually worked in nonprofits for substance abuse prevention. While I was working in substance abuse prevention, I got really interested in domestic violence. We had a few people in the organization that I was at who were on our board who worked for the local domestic violence shelter of where I was located in Idaho at the time. And I really realized that there was a huge correlation between substance abuse and domestic violence, but the women and the men and children who were suffering from domestic violence really touched me. So when we moved from Idaho to Colorado, I reached out to the local domestic violence shelter and have been part of the world since then and eventually moved into the executive director role that I'm currently in. So you're a transplant, just like me. That's what they call us. I'm from Miami originally, then I moved to Chicago, and now I'm here in Tennessee, and I've been here for a few years. You went from Idaho, now you're in Colorado, and guess what? Transplants are the best, because we know about a little bit of everything, and a little culture here, a little culture there. Um, I love how you talked about the correlation between substance abuse and how it affects people that are in domestic violence. But also, especially because I'm a child and youth advocate, I love how you correlated how it impacts children. 
So a lot of people don't know this, but domestic violence and child abuse has a direct correlation because if there are children in the home, they're more likely to be used as a tool of manipulation for domestic violence and sometimes even to be abused just to make that point of power and control. But I will not go all the way into this because I totally can. (laughs) Um, I could too, so that's okay. (laughs) I'm like such a nerd for these things because, you know, I know the importance and anytime I'm passionate about something, I become such a little geek. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, children can also be used as a tool for people not to leave abusive relationships. And I know you know that, but that is playing a stronger role with our current atmosphere and going through the uh, COVID-19 and coronavirus And we're going to talk about that. But before we get started, because a lot of listeners actually, from what I've heard, either aren't familiar with domestic violence, feel like if um, they don't really know anyone that's in domestic violence. So I just want to give a couple of stats to help paint the picture pre-COVID-19, pre-lockdown domestic violence stats. So one in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence. Examples of this severe physical violence are beating, burning, strangling by an intimate partner in their lifetime. The presence of a gun in domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%. Across the U.S., 75% of domestic violence-related deaths occur after a victim takes steps to separate from their abuser. From 2010 to 2014, 22% of law enforcement officers' deaths are in the line of duty occurred while responding to a call for services involving domestic violence disputes. So Carrie, as an executive director of a domestic violence agency, what do you feel and what do you think of when you hear these stats? It's heart-wrenching to me and it's true. These are things that I see every day and I believe that people who are out in the community and out and about don't really realize they have their one preconceived notion of what domestic violence is. Um, Back in in the day, like in the 80s, there was a movie, you won't remember this because you're too young, but there was a movie called The Burning Bed that was on TV. There you go. (laughs) So that that is what people get in their head is that these men physically abuse and and beat up their spouses their women and the women want revenge so they burn the bed and kill their husband and and that's not what domestic violence is about and some of these statistics are staggering um one in four women but we also need to remember one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence as well so it's not just the battered women issue that we thought about. We need to take those when we think of ways and we develop best practices for how to support these victims. Um, The statistic that you mentioned, the presence of a gun in domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%. Right now, there is an increase in purchase of weapons going on. 
they're people are scared and one of the ways that they do that is they're scared of what's going on with the virus and with people having stay at home orders so they're going out and they're buying new new weapons and having weapons in the home unfortunately those of us that run domestic violence shelters or who work in domestic violence shelters that's scary we worry about what's going to happen because of those statistics of having guns in the home and we know it can increase it not only having the gun in the home but right now during everything stress is crazy so you have the stress of people being in the home and being tight together kids are in the home you're trying to teach the kids at the same time and if they have that gun handy it is a scary scary situation and what i want to say about that is that here in Tennessee, there are so many gun owners. We are not talking about respons- responsible gun owners that have their guns locked and would never use it as an abusive tactic or something to control someone. We are talking about people, like in those stats pre-COVID, that deal with domestic violence in that house. They are controlling their spouse. They're controlling their children. And having that gun is a form of, one, intimidation, and two, If just in case you decide to leave, I will use my gun. As I said before, there's a stat pre-COVID that says across the U.S., 75% of domestic violence-related deaths occur after a victim takes steps to separate from their abuser. I learned this statistic when I first started at the agency. Basically, it means that the deadliest time for a person that's in a domestic violence relationship is when they're trying to leave, point blank. This is when their lethality rises to the highest max. And then to go along with that stat, everybody says to you when you're a victim, well, why didn't you call the cops? Well, this again is pre-COVID. From 2010 to 2014, 22% of law enforcement officers' deaths in the line of duty occurred while responding to a call for services involving domestic violence. You can talk to any officer you know. The scariest calls for them are domestic violence calls. And there's a vast many reasons for why that is. But basically what it comes to is domestic violence is a dynamic between an intimate partner, a husband and a wife, a boyfriend and a girlfriend, a boyfriend and a boyfriend, however you want to put it. And it's emotional. And there are things to keep you in that that the law enforcement's going to come up on and doesn't know that are there like a gun Mm -hmm. so i'm really happy that carrie you brought this up because at the end of the day we're talking about pre-covid this these stressors these stats were already out there to tell people what domestic violence is now we're talking about during covid so jumping in there Right now, during COVID, the country has been in lockdown for several weeks. Some agencies have raised concerns of a rise in domestic violence, but there have also been reports of a decrease in domestic violence calls to hotlines in several states. My question is, what are advocates seeing? Why are they on alert? What do advocates see happening in the lockdown that has them preparing for an increase in domestic violence? What are the dangers of confinement? Why is being at home with your abuser more dangerous now? It's a lot of questions at once, but they are all related. And (laughs) we are absolutely in the unknown right now. 
and we're trying to assume things that are going to happen. As an agency, we have been looking back towards other disasters and how they relate. So Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Katrina, we're, we're figuring out that although this isn't a hurricane, it is still a disaster. It's a natural disaster in the form of a pandemic. With those disasters, the research does show that calls at domestic violence agencies and crisis lines and sexual assault agencies were reduced in the immediate time, the immediate aftermath after the disaster. However, two months down the line, they greatly increased. And we started wondering that because my advocates started saying, you know, I, I keep expecting this influx of calls coming in mm -hmm. and they're not. So I'm confused on what's going to happen. And we looked back at that research and realized it. We also started thinking about things. When people are stuck at home, are they going to be able to call? Can they then sneak away? No, they're abusive partner is at the home in the home with them are they going to have a private moment to reach out for help do they feel comfortable going out in public right now if they need help um if they're symptomatic do they feel like if they reach out to a shelter or other places for service that they're going to be denied services because they're symptomatic there are so many factors in it so when the um situation when COVID-19 first started and we went into here in Colorado, our stay at home orders started on May 23rd. We began about a week prior to start the social distancing, uh, separating people, having our staff not have as much face-to-face -face time and figuring out how we were going to do it as things got worse. Uh, within the month of March, that month, so the pandemic started more thoroughly halfway through it, we were down about 21% from the prior year. So March the prior year to that year, we were down 21%. I just ran the statistics this morning because we're at the end of April. I've been checking in with the advocates. They keep saying, seems like it's a lot more quiet than usual. Mm -hmm. um, what's going on? So I ran the numbers for April. This April, compared to last April, we are down 45% in our wow. crisis calls coming in. That has us worried because we do know that people being isolated and being on stay-at-home orders have to be causing more issues and more violence and an increase in abuse for people. So what do we do? How do we help them reach out? Um, you know, isolation is already a reg regular tactic, right, that abusers can use to manipulate uh, and control their victims. This is prime for them right now. They have total control and isolation. They're also doing things of control like don't leave the house, don't go out. You could get the disease and die or you could bring it home to me. All of those controlling factors are really coming into play right now. And we know that that's increasing, you know, the potential for exploitation and, and abuse for these victims. So what are we going to do to help them? And those are things that us, along with other domestic violence agencies and organizations around the country are really trying to figure out right now. How can we reach people? 
as an agency, as our agency, we are putting stuff out as much as we can on social media to have suggestions and signs for people who might be able to see it. Hopefully they're reading their Facebook and they come across, are you in an abusive situation? Here are things that you can do to protect yourself. So we're really trying to get the word out. We want to spread that around the country if we can, you know, try not to go into rooms that might perpetuate violence. Stay away from your abuser as much as possible. If you have children, and Caroline, I know you work with the children, discuss things with the children. Make sure that they know emergency numbers to call or neighbors that they can go to if there's a real emergency. If you have a loved one, a family or friend outside of the home, get code words. Have code words so that you can reach out to your friend and say, you know, text a code word that's not going to get you in trouble immediately, but where that friend might be able to know you've pre-planned. If I send you this code word, send officers or call and check up on me, things like that. And we're just hoping we can reach as much people as possible. We are also predicting because of doing the research for past disasters that probably next month, if not sooner, we're going to see a huge uptick in calls and people who need help. So we need to prepare for that as well. I'm so glad you're saying all these things because as an advocate, I know these things, but also as a person that reads the news, if you have been paying attention, not just in the United States, but outside, they're seeing an increase in people trying to reach out differently because they're in domestic violence situations in the UK. And I love this story. They have pharmacies that they're working with and they basically created this code word called uh, mask 19. 19. So if a person comes to the pharmacy and says mask 19, it means I'm in domestic violence. It is serious. Get me help. I can only say this word. And then I think back to pre-COVID and that intelligent woman that called for a pizza at a law enforcement, 911. She called 911. She got the operator and she's saying, I need a large pepperoni pizza. The operator says, what are you doing? You are calling the wrong number. She's like, no, no, you do not understand. I need that large pepperoni pizza. And luckily his intuition kicked in and he was like, wait, 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 are you in danger right now? She said, yes, I need that pepperoni pizza. He said, are you in domestic violence? Yes. Should we have officers head that way? Yes. And she kept on doing this with him and he picked up on it. Had it been any other operator, he himself said they would have not picked up on that call. They probably would have hung up. So that was pre-COVID. There was a domestic violence victim having to figure out how to communicate her needs because of the danger she was in. Now we're seeing it all over. They are reaching out Facebook messages directly to the domestic violence agency websites. They're coming up with interesting ways to communicate with their family. I need help, whether it's wearing a certain shirt they've never worn or sending a message that makes absolutely no sense, but to the family member says something is wrong. So what I get 
from everything you just said is that in silence, abuse thrives. Absolutely. I hope that with what we're doing today, we can kind of not just paint the picture of what's happening in these private homes, apartments, complexes for every type of victim, male, female, child, a Spanish person, a person that has no language skills in English, but is here and is trapped in their apartment with their abuser. I hope that not only do we get to paint that picture for people that are listening, but that maybe we can provide some safety tips on how they can reach out for help and get out. So with my next question, I think about some of the articles that I've read and how there's this idea that advocates are just exaggerating the problem. We're just trying to get attention for the cause. So help me understand this, Carrie. Are advocates exaggerating the problem or is the truth just too uncomfortable to talk about? Help me understand why people are saying domestic violence is not as big as a problem during a lockdown. Does quarantine plus unemployment equal more peace in an already unhealthy relationship? Uh, Well, no, it definitely does not equal more peace in an already unhealthy relationship. It, It Frankly, it causes not peace in healthy relationships yep we it's a hard situation to be in so Mm -hmm. no and it's really disheartening to me and it always has been pre-covid during covid of people who say it's really not that big of a deal it's between a husband and and a wife wife. Mm -hmm. yeah it's they can figure it all out on their own we don't want to get involved. And we always say it's very uncomfortable for people to talk about because sometimes there are situations that make you think, hmm, am I in a healthy relationship? And people don't want to face that. Uh, we always say in the world of, of nonprofits and, and fundraising and where people do pay attention, you know, they go, they go help the agencies. We always say we are not puppies and children. It is Mm -hmm. puppies and children. People love to think that's a problem. We need to help puppies and children. Nobody wants to sit and think about the abuse that's happening behind closed doors. And there are a lot of closed doors right now. So that means there is an absolute ton of abuse going on. And we need people to face that reality. They need to face it so that they can sit and you know, the problem is not going to be solved until we know that that is what it is. And the other thing I'd like to talk about, and I know you know this as an advocate, but for those who are listening who don't know about it, my favorite thing to teach people about domestic violence is the power and control wheel. Because, you know, the first thing that you think about is domestic violence is that person who punches and beats his wife. It is not. It is all about power and control. So there are many relationships out there who have had no physical violence. It is still an abusive situation and should not be thought of as, oh, well, he's never hit her or she's never physically touched him. She's just a female. She can't physically, it can't be domestic abuse with him because she's a female. That's not what it's about. It is totally about the power and control. It can be financial. It can be sexual. It can be religious. Um, all these things. And right now with those doors closed and people behind them, there's a lot more control going on. I really appreciate everything you're saying because it's helping people understand that domestic violence is not the 
physical abuse that occurs only when you buck the system. That is a part of it. That is when you say no, when you show your independence and when you try to have your control back. Anytime Mm -hmm. you do that, the abuser is going to be like, oh, really? And there's going to be a consequence of that. Yeah, it might be physical violence. Yes, it might be sexual violence. But most of the time, I would say about 95% of the relationship is this power and control dynamic in which the person just wants to have you under their thumb. No one else's thumb. No one else there for you under their thumb, whether it's taking you to their job, even though you have two cars, but they're going to take you to work because they're so worried about other people that might have a crush on you, but they trust you. They don't trust them. And this is a good way for them to help you stay away from those other people that are going to creep on you. Or whether it's like right now, everybody is getting their check from the government, right? So I've always done my taxes separately from my husband, but some people, because of their abusive controlling relationship, only do it in one account. So that one account's going for the abuser and that check's going straight to the abuser. And he is not going to tell you, we got this much money in. No. He is going to say, hey, I put $20 on your bed. (laughs) That's what you get. Right. And how do you leave a situation like that? With $20. Right. How do you leave when somebody else has control over the money and you have no way out how do you leave when you have two children that you have to take care of so or if you haven't been working for three years because they told you they'd rather you stay home because i'll take care yeah you take care of the children i'll take care of you yep it is absolutely a problem i also like how you and i know it's a touchy subject you talked about how like society views our agencies our non-for-profits I do a lot of community events and then so we put out this tablecloth on top of our table that says Avalon Center Domestic Violence Agency I cannot tell you how many people will not talk to me or avoid my booth because they see that it's not that they hate domestic violence or the subject. I do not believe that's the case. It's they don't want to be associated with it. And God forbid they even stop by the table and say, hi, how's your day going? Because then someone might see and them. Think they're being abused. Think, yeah. It's a, it's a stigma. They're being abused. You know? It's a stigma. And the problem is that if you're not in domestic violence and you carry that type of behavior around domestic violence agencies, what makes you think that someone that is a victim is going to feel less shame than you right. do and is going to want to reach out for Absolutely. help? I'm so glad we got to talk Me about too. that. But now I want to talk about the barriers because that's what's really going on right now with this lockdown. What barriers are you and your advocates seeing or hearing from everything from law enforcement to the court system to the lack of support for victims? Just talk to me about what what's going on in Colorado because it's probably just like it, it I'm sure it absolutely is. It's probably the same everywhere. Colorado has actually recently moved from a stay at home order to a safer at home order. Um, doesn't change much. People <laughs> that still means that people are are stuck at home. Most of the shelters in Colorado have gone to, and I'm, I'm going to guess you guys probably have too. We usually all have limited stays, right? We 
we want to be able to get people back on their feet and self-sufficient so that we can bring in more people who need safety and a safe place to stay. Um, most of the shelters in Colorado right now have put a hold on their exits or how long people can stay. So unfortunately, shelters are full. Uh, there's no, people have nowhere to go right now. There's no finding a location. There's no traveling. In fact, we specifically have somebody in our shelter right now who has family and a safe place to go. That family and that safe place to go is in another state and she can't get there right now. She doesn't feel safe to take the bus or get on an airplane. So she is staying with us until she can safely get to her family. That unfortunately is taking up space for someone else who needs the room. So we really, huge barrier right now is just not having enough safe space for people to go to. We already pre-COVID have a problem in Colorado with, uh, with shelter. There's hardly ever a shelter that has space open. Limited. Very, limited very shelters. limited. Um, fortunately in Colorado, we were, uh, off the state has some special funding for hotel stays. So we are working to put people in limited hotel stays who need safety. Unfortunately for that, is the word limited. So we can put people up for a week or two. That's the, about the funding that we have. What are they gonna do when that's over? It's a barrier. We have nowhere else to send them, no way to help them. And sometimes, unfortunately, we just have to stay, say, either you stay with your abuser or you're homeless. And we don't ever wanna have to say that to somebody. So we work on the best resources that we can. We probably the largest thing that we do right now are my advocates when people call into shelter is safety planning. Let's put a safety plan together. We understand you have to stay in the situation where you're at because you have nowhere else to go, but let's put a safety plan together. What's going to happen if something dangerous happens. So we just have to do the best that we can to work what we can work with right now. Courts are closed. We're waiting to see if they're reopening. They are. I think the Supreme Court just said that maybe, and they're going to leave it up to certain county judges to kind of figure out their own plan for allowing people back in their courts. Right. So once they receive that plan back from those judges, then they'll approve them on base to base, each one individually. So again, the same courts with these victims are relying on are they are and we have no now. idea we still don't know for larimer county the county i'm in we don't know what's going on fortunately we know people in the da's office and in the courts and we're waiting to say what are you guys going to do they are doing some remote remote bond hearings now for arrests um i'd be really curious to see what the numbers look like on arrests right now for domestic violence it's too soon to get those numbers but I'm going to guess that they're down because I know that law enforcement is trying to limit as much face-to-face -face contact as they can. So it's. And I'm not sure if you heard any of these yet, but here in Tennessee, we've heard a couple of stories from abusers that once COVID, once the officer gets there, they'll be like, yep. oh, well, I have COVID and she's been in contact or she has COVID. Whatever the dynamic is, 
So then law enforcement's well like, whoa, 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 we can't take Absolutely. this right now. <laughs> so I'm sure that the calls are down right now. Um, I think they are able at the moment to issue emergency protection orders, um, orders but I'm not sure yeah. how frequently that's happening. Doesn't really matter because you could have that order of protection and how's it going to be enforced? People are staying away from each other right now. So it's really just a, a whole mess of everything that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes we don't know how to solve the problem. Sometimes there are things that we can't do and we're kind of doing it on the fly. Let's, let's try to protect these people as much as we possibly can. Thank you for like being so open about the reality. Like, at the end of the day, our jobs with safety planning were already difficult. Not that I don't love it. I love my job. I love safety planning. I love helping people. But they were already difficult pre-COVID. Because when you think about safety planning, at the end of the day, if you're a good advocate, in my opinion, you are trying to keep that right. person alive. So that was pre-COVID. Now we're thinking about times 10, in my opinion, because we have to tell them, hey, Make sure to delete all your cachet on your online thing. Make sure to use a private login right. when you log in. If you reach out to help, make sure to delete your text messages. Make sure to use a public phone if you're going to reach out. Or go to the library to use a public computer so they can't trace oh, your Oh, but IP libraries address. aren't open. These people... <laughs> so they, oh, I forgot so they about can't. That. Libraries <laughs> yeah. are closed. The... So they're trapped. I mean, their lethality is so high and they're trapped in these situations where they are doing everything they can to not just survive this, but if they have children, get them to survive too. And we're on that other end trying to safety plan with what we have. But like you said, sometimes even we don't know what to say to them. There's only so much that we can do from Facebook messaging or a call if we're lucky to talk to them for a few minutes or a text message. We're working with the bare minimum right now with what is out there and what resources we can refer them to. We have minimal shelter here in Tennessee as well. And to tell a client, well, if you leave tonight, we don't have shelter, so you might have to sleep in your car. And for them to say to us, well, I have children, so I guess I'm going to stay. Now we're not just talking about safety planning, but we're talking about teaching the client how to be submissive, how to keep her abuser happy, how to stop the conflict from escalating while she has to be in that right. situation. And that's uncomfortable for us as much as it is for them to even have to listen to Nobody wants that. We want to offer them a place to stay that they will Absolutely. Be and it is super heartbreaking for those times that, I mean, I know that we don't say it if I answer the crisis line or our advocates do, but sometimes we feel like hanging up by going, good luck. <laughs> and we're mm -hmm. clearly not mm -hmm. going to say that, but that's what's in our head. Well, good luck. I hope that all works for you. Because we're thinking it, well, how would we survive in that right. situation? We would need all and the luck in the world. And you can't. You know, this situation actually happened very recently for me with a employee of mine. Um, a lot of employees oh, no. in who work, a lot of staff advocates who work in domestic violence are 
victims and it doesn't mean you can't be a victim you can still you've either been a former victim or you're currently a victim even though you know what signs to look for and i think it's almost worse for people who work in this field because they're like i should know better i should have seen this coming no nobody yeah nobody knows better nobody does but even asking for somebody personally this is an employee of mine and she's got a situation with an ex of hers right now and it is dangerous and she was texting me and talking to me about it and i did not know what to say to her because you know i did the usual call the police file the report make sure you're in a safe space lock the house don't let him know where you are fortunately it's not a a living situation so she's not stuck living in that situation but there are things happening that i want to just say well you know be careful (laughs) but there's what if she can't be careful so the best that i can say to her is please let me know if i can do anything please let me know what you need and sometimes that's all we can do for people we know who are in abusive situations I did offer her the shelter, though. <laughs> we do. That, that is just amazing that, you know, even you can say, because you know, you know, as a director, our advocates, even at the Avalon Center, most of them have been previous victims of some sort of abuse or domestic violence or sexual assault. We have a history of it. So when we help new people, clients, just know that, for us as advocates, with all our professionalism and our cordial nature, we feel all these re-triggerizations, right, through these stories and trying to safety plan. And we have to put that aside during that call. We have to do our best to help that person survive. And then right after that call ends, that good luck portion rings in our mind, like, oh, I was in that before. Oh, I know what it's like to feel trapped. But this person, I really feel for them. And then you have to think about like people that are being manipulated by exes. Let's say your female ex says, hey, you know, for the sake of the children, can we cohabitate throughout this lockdown? If you were apart from this person because they were violent or manipulative or whatever it was, Please keep that in mind. The lockdown will not make it better. Do not cohabitate. If you haven't already, don't do it. Even for the child, figure out a different situation. You are the expert of your life. You can figure that out. Also, visitation has become more dangerous because a lot of places are no longer open where people would need to go ahead and say, here, here's my child. This is your visitation time. So you had that protection of a business being open during the day. Those are now closed. Law enforcement is not going to come unless it's a dangerous situation. So there are these blurred lines for abusers that they're taking advantage of it. They're seeing all these open doors. Like, I can do this now. I can do this. I can do that. And all I want for when people listen to these podcasts is to think, I learned something today I can use. Right. They won't get me. They won't get me on this. And I'm so glad you just brought up the truth. The truth is advocates know from education and training, but they also know from history and literally living through some of this stuff. So we come into it with both empathy and logic. 
It's not one it's or the other. Yep. It's both. Um, when you think of how your organization has had to adapt to serve all these new clients, all the people that are able to reach out or get to you, how have you been able to fulfill the need when everybody is in lockdown and we can't well, do face services? Well, we are services? trying to figure it out as we go. We are trying to figure out remote advocacy. How can we talk to people over the phone if their abuser's home? How can we talk to them by video conferencing if their abuser's at home? Being really creative about it. Um, we're trying to figure out new online systems to use because, frankly, we haven't used them very much. We're typically there. And we have another issue is confidentiality. I mean, with with people who are in abusive situations, you got to remain confidential. But frankly, not just common sense, but by law. That's the one good thing. I mean, there's many good things. But one good thing that this government has done is given very good uh, confidentiality laws and regulations for people who are victims of domestic abuse. And we have to honor that. And how, how do we figure it out if we're doing everything remotely, over the phone, by email? So we're constantly researching on different uh, programs that we can use to help people. How can we still say, be there for them, but have our staff stay safe as well? Right now, we have our shelter program, and we have non-residential also, people who might not need shelter immediately, um, who have already left their abusers or have family to stay with. We're staggering shifts. So our non-residential staff, our housing staff who help people find housing, we're having them work in our building one at a time, but be able to reach our victims remotely. Um, Safe House staff, we are a 24-hour shelter. So we've got somebody there all the time, but we are keeping them as separate as possible. They're still available by phone at any time, but uh, not doing quite the face-to-face contact that we normally do. And frankly, normally prefer because there is something to be said about making eye contact with somebody. So it's just adapting and, and figuring that out. So... I love how you're talking about this because here at the Avalon Center, I mean, we've had to transform every bit of it. We barely do face-to-face. And if we do face-to-face, it's only at shelter and it's Mm -hmm. within the context of another room. So they're not really in the same room. We've had to change the way that we approach people on Facebook or they approach us. And we've had to safety plan double because now we have to tell them, Hey, your abuser might grab your phone or might grab your computer. Will this be a danger? And even just getting out of the house, safety planning, how do you get out of the house when your abuser is also home 24 seven and they prefer to go out because they want to keep you safe. So you're trapped. And we have to safety plan around that scenario. And so right now, what I feel is like all the agencies in the United States have this shared responsibility to help victims the best they can, even with the Absolutely. Would you accurate. say that's accurate? In any way we can figure it out. And, you know, we're all kind of weighing the pros and cons of how do we help our staff, too? We don't want our staff to be at risk. Um you know, so I'm trying to to do how can we still serve people but make you feel safe? So it's just something 
constantly going on on a daily basis. There's always that exactly. pop-up roadblock in a way. I'm sure you get tons of calls from your advocates saying, what's going on? How can we fix this? Constantly working like, together. Working and together. and I let them, you know, I want to yeah. problem solve together. What suggestions do you have? What would make you feel safer? What do you think we should do? And and I love working together as a team. Also in the state of Colorado, uh, we have a coalition here in the state, as many states do, a domestic violence coalition, and they have set up weekly statewide calls. So we all get on a Zoom call, every executive director or program director and all the agencies in Colorado, and we try to help each other problem solve. Hey, who has been dealing with this situation? And what can I do? Or how have you worked that out? And it's really, really beneficial in communication amongst all agencies, just not in the state, but nationally. I actually have a fantastic board and the board has put together a task force to try to plan for this. And one of my board members wow. on the task force has been contacting other agencies who seem to be dealing with things. She's been working with an agency um, an organization in New York, because New York has such a large amount of uh, COVID-19 going on right now. How are they dealing with things? And having shared resources is really, really helpful. I always think about like the problem is the silence, right? So like this lockdown is not allowing victims to have this communication with us but if we don't have the communication with each other as agencies as advocates as directors we cannot be serving right. these people any better we just can't so I love how you're talking about this and you're really painting a picture of what every single agency throughout the United States including Colorado and Tennessee are doing we're working with our coalitions we're working with law enforcement we're building stronger communication every single day so that victims don't feel Absolutely. like if they have no one there for them. You, you should know we are here for you. We're here to serve you. We're here to help. We're here for you. That's not going away. No matter what the abuser Absolutely. says, we are here for you. So can you explain, I'm not sure if you guys have it in Colorado, but I'm going to assume you do lap assessments. Uh, lap well, assessment I'm assuming it's a lethality assessment. So that's typically what we call it is a lethality yes. assessment. Yep. Yeah. Can you talk to me about what a lethality assessment is when it's done and how it kind of helps us differentiate within the different forms of domestic violence that could be happening in that house. Yeah, well, and, you know, and it's different because I don't know if our law, local law enforcement uses lap assessments. So I, you know, I can only, I can only trust got, what I they're saying and doing. And, and interestingly <laughs> enough, our local law enforcement, <laughs> we are their victim advocates. So many, many law enforcement That's agencies awesome. have their own victim advocates on staff uh, to be able to help people with the Victims Rights Act and, and what they're allowed. We contract with them. So we are, um, and hopefully they're doing an assessment before calling us out there, but we do go on scene. We have advocates that go on scene and, and we will assess the situation. Now, fortunately, by the time our advocates are there, they're has been an arrest made. So we tend to do more of the follow-up where we really do lethality assessments is when people call in 
Um, or if we know that somebody's being released on bond, we will be there for the client and go in to bond. We also work with our local hospital uh, in the for when people come in and they do an assessment to see is this a dangerous situation. So. Um, I love that you guys really work with law enforcement and with the hospital. On our end here in Tennessee, a lethality assessment is done when it's a domestic violence call. Uh, most law enforcement officers that work within the seven counties that Avalon Center serves will call us, right? And they'll be like, I'm calling about a lap assessment, which is a lethality assessment of the situation. And the advocate, if the victim is willing to talk to us, will ask the specific questions to assess how bad the lethality how deadly it is what they're in right now one and also to be able to communicate that to that person before any arrests are made but also before the officer leaves the scene and so we can help them safety plan but also possibly leave if they have to and in that lethality assessment the main focus is have you been strangled was there a weapon used against you are there any children in the house? Was there abuse done in front of the children? Um, did this person ever threaten at any point to kill you, either now or in the past? And when you think about those questions, again, people think domestic violence is purely physical. It is not. There is a lot of intimidation. There is a lot of tactics that are put in there before you ever buck the system. So here law enforcement is calling an advocate to do this lethality assessment. We're lucky if we- That's get amazing the that they do, do call. The I love this. See and what we, happens when you talk from state to state? We're like, hey, we should do that. I know, I was thinking the same thing. That is great. Yeah, I was like thinking the same thing about the hospital or working yeah. with the law enforcement or being able to show up on scene because we cannot show up on scene. So we'll do the call. We maybe have somewhere between 10 minutes max like to 15 minutes max because again this is a law enforcement officer's phone and we also have to kind of get this person to trust us enough to a total stranger over the phone to talk about the most intimate difficult situation possible and then express to them hey based on the answers to your question your lethality the fact that you were in that You're right in now says that you have a higher risk of dying from this. And something I really want to communicate to people is if a person is in high lethality, if a person was in such an abusive situation that they could have died, if the abuser and them stay together or if they get back together once the person gets out of jail, the next time it will not be Absolutely. better than the last time. It will be worse. It doesn't decrease the violence. It will only increase the violence. So right now with COVID, our worry is for people that do reach out for help or for neighbors that call law enforcement on their neighbors because they're hearing things. Once law enforcement leaves, if there was oh. not an arrest, do you really think that that abuser? Yeah, maybe be, I was right, wrong. I'm hands, sorry. Rooms, yeah. we'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you really think that's going to happen? No. Mm, I think not. So I'm glad we got to explain. Yeah, no, me too, because I see how people look at it differently. And that's amazing. Now I kind of want to call up our law enforcement and say, hey, let's do this before you go on a call or while you're on the call before we come out. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, I love that. 
what are some of the specific tactics abusers are using during COVID to control their victims? I know we kind of touched on this, but if we can go into a little bit more of a detail and how have clients and advocates had to adapt to safety planning during COVID? Again, just a little bit more details because I always hope that someone that might be going through this is going to listen and hear. Right. Oh, wow. If I get out, I should do this. No, I think it's totally important. And we only go based on phone calls that we get and research that we've done. But definitely I have um, heard about the uh, telling their victim that they cannot go outside or that they are going to get the virus and bring it home to the family and their children could die if they do that. And really just the guilt and the control of coming in, the anger, the stress of being in the house of, um, you know, it's it seems to be going more into physical violence than it had been before because people are just so strained right now. One thing I really like to say and just want to emphasize is those of us who are not in an abusive situation but are thinking that one of our friends and family are in an abusive situation, the best thing we can do right now is reach out to them. We're not having that face-to-face contact on a daily basis. Some people are allowed to, the way they escape the violence is going to work every day and talking to their coworkers or feeling better. They're not able to do that right now, but we do want to check in on them. So there are things that you can do like um, setting up a Zoom call or at least trying to make eye contact. One area that we have also seen abusers from talking to people who have called in is that they're um, holding cleaning supplies away from them. So, hey, he wouldn't let me go get hand sanitizers or wipes. And I feel like it's dangerous right now. He won't let me wear a mask because he doesn't think that it's anything. So if I do go to, yeah, if I go to the grocery store, it's too. ridiculous. You don't need to wear a mask. And I feel for my safety. So those are things that family, friends, and loved ones can do is, you know, bring, drop off cleaning supplies. If he won't let, and I hate to say he, if the abuser will not, he or she. Or she, she could be very, exactly. very crazy if and manipulative they, and controlling. Um, or keeping those things away from them, drop them off at their house and leave them out on their step. Uh You know, maybe they can sneak as long as you get them a mask, they can put it in their purse or their car. So if they do go grocery shopping, they're able to wear that mask. Just really, really check in on your loved ones and your friends. If they're not your loved ones, if they're your coworkers, their friends, just check on them and see how they're doing. They're not going to have the uncomfortable conversation. Just have it. Say, are you okay? Let me know if you ever need help. I'll always be here, even if no matter yep. what, I'll always be here. Those three. Oh, phrases, they do. They do. The worst them. thing that you can say is, "Why aren't you leaving? Why didn't you leave? You should just leave." We okay. cannot say that to people. The best we can do is to let them know that we're there, because a lot of times people are not going to admit they're in an abusive situation. They may not even recognize it themselves. But when things 
escalate and move further on. They know, hey, I remember that, you know, Carolina said that I could call her if things were going wrong. So just open the line of communications is the best that I can say. For those people that are like, oh, I don't understand why they won't leave or whatever. I just want to paint this picture. So about like, a, I would say almost two years ago, maybe three now, I worked at a senior living facility and there was a med nurse that came to work probably three or four times while I worked there with one time it was one major black eye covered. The next time it was both eyes black with makeup on. The third time was she Ugh. also had her wrist broken. The fourth time, she just looked so messed up. And here's the part that got to me. I worked as a social worker. And when I tell you, we probably had upward of 50 nurses at the senior center. No one, when I say no one, would talk to her about it. No one would say, are you okay? Can I help you? No one would ask her anything. And how do I know this? Because I asked a nurse, because I wasn't too close with this woman, and so I didn't want to brighten her off. I asked a nurse, hey, you're closer with her. Have you ever talked to her about it? And she said to me, right. no, that's family business. Out here, we don't mess with that. So here's the problem. If no one is willing, <laughs> and I mean no one, to touch the uncomfortable situation as a friend, as a colleague, as a coworker, as a concerned citizen that sees someone being physically abused because you can't run into that many doors you gotta be able to say hey you might never want to talk about this with me but all you have to do and know is I am here one day if you ever do want to talk about it just come talk to me if one day you ever need help just come find me if I'm no longer here Absolutely. you can look me up I will be there so offering that word and checking in. Yeah. You don't need to be best friends it. with it them matter either. They just need years. to know that you're there and that they have somebody to talk to. So. And during COVID, this is your time to be a right. better human being than ever. So if you have a family member you're not that close with, but you know that they might be going through something, a coworker or a friend, send them a text, call them, especially face or Zoom, because you want to kind of assess the situation. If you were right in front of them, you could read their body language, their That's tone, right. see if they have any marks on them. But you can't do that right now. So go ahead and call FaceTime or Zoom and get that check-in in and even again, even if you'd never talk about it, if they never address it, if they don't say anything about it, just say, hey, you know, if you ever needed help, That's do right. not hesitate. I'm right here. So let's end on some positive okay. notes, Carrie. What is the good news? What are we saying to everybody trapped that at someday home? it's got What's to end. <laughs> it has to end. Uh, the good stuff, yeah. I noticed that I think people are reaching out more. Everybody is in this situation. And I've seen humankind come together and support each other more and just work really hard with each other and more caring. So there's got to be something good coming out of this pandemic. And, and that's what I think it is. I really think people are becoming closer. I think the good news is also the connection that since everybody is missing that connection with hanging out with their coworkers and their friends, 
now people are striving harder for a connection. Even you and me on this podcast or other agencies working with each other, no matter what that connection's being built. And because of that, for people that are trapped or being abused or children that are in a dangerous situation, we are here for you. The good news is no matter what you're being told, no matter what's going on around you, that's right. You are not alone. We are here. So I've got fun three questions more little are fun good. questions. Um, what, what makes a good advocate? Oh my gosh. Anybody can be a good advocate, but it's really caring about other people and wanting to advocate for that person. I've noticed every advocate that I have worked with is selfless. And that's just the one thing that I noticed. You don't have to be selfless. We're all entitled to be selfish at some point or another, but really, yeah, yeah, exactly. With ice cream. So, but a good and a good advocate also recognizes that that there's self care in there too. You need to take care of yourself before you're able to help out others. Yeah, a hundred percent. And how can directors, managers, supervisors, chief of police? Um, governors, mayors, how can they be good leaders to listen, for listen, their listen. During and that's what I say is listen, ask for advice, get your staff's perspective. They're on the front lines. I'm a director. I'm not on the front lines as much as you advocates are. Um, I know a lot because I ask a lot and I want to make sure I want to know that the calls that my staff is getting, I want to make sure they're comfortable I set up during this whole thing, I set up Zoom calls so we can laugh. I don't set up Zoom calls to talk about work all the time. When they get on, they're like this, ready to say, you know, what do we need to talk about? Here's the training I did, Carrie. And I always say, I don't care. I just want to know how you're doing. How are you surviving <laughs> all this? Tell me something funny that happened in your day. So, and to me, that's important. You don't, you don't need to be their friend, but we all do need to listen and gain others' perspective. I think it's leadership at the end of the day is someone that can listen and be empathetic, understanding, and strive for someone to have good characteristics Absolutely. that they know they have in them, just pushing them, empowering them. And I can hear it in your voice. I can hear it from everything you've told me. You are. Oh, a I try. So but thank you. And I'm glad I got to be podcast. here as well. <laughs> Great. I got one more question for you. How can communities help domestic violence? But a community as a whole is to raise awareness. We don't, can't help what we don't know. So the best that we can, yep, or in denial. So the best that we can is have community members share information, share red flags. We need government entities within communities to take it seriously and offer funding that helps out agencies like ours to help domestic abuse victims instead of just pushing it under a rug. Well, Carrie... I said it a bunch of times prior to the podcast, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's people like you that help people like me do well, my the world job is the lucky. Oh, thank and you. And we're Colorado's lucky to have you and even to, have to you. put this podcast together. And exactly what I just said. Communities need to spread awareness and 
that's what you're doing and that's amazing and bringing people together. So thank you so much for. I'm so thrilled and excited that I had this opportunity to interview Carrie Clark. She's an executive director at Alternatives to Violence in Colorado. Together, we provided so much input and information into what this COVID lockdown is actually doing to victims and how it's affecting them and making them feel trapped. I hope that if you listen to this podcast completely, you thought to yourself, I want to do something for this cause. Our goal is always to help and empower and to listen and to share Today was a beautiful day for this podcast. I hope you stay tuned for our next one.